Well, today we're wrapping up uh, what has been the four-part series for the month of November, uh, talking about a better life. And I'm just going to go ahead and say as a preview for starting next Sunday, can you believe next Sunday is going to be the first Sunday of Advent? We'll be in December next Sunday, decorated for Christmas. And for those of us who are Christmas nuts in the room, that is just all good. Can't get here soon enough. But uh, I'm going to be doing a series throughout the the first four weeks of December that's Christmas-centered. I think you're really going to like this. Uh, I'm excited about it. I'm just calling it uh, Christmas carols. We're going to be using a different uh, well-known Christmas carol to focus in the message. It's going to be the centerpiece of the message each week. And we start next week with my favorite Christmas carol. So hope you can be here uh, next Sunday as we dive into that. But today, as we wrap up uh, A Better Life, we've been in this whole series talking about the good life that God that the world invites us to and the better life that God has called us to and looking at different passages where God speaks to choices that we can make for the better. And uh, we have been memorizing scriptures. We've gone through this. We're going to do that again today. And so just a quick rewind, the three things that we talked about. And if you can, jump in and join me as we remember these. Week one, it was Psalm 84.1. And the better thought for that day was, better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Good job. Uh, In that that message, we just saw the importance of having a daily awareness of God's presence and and how a day with the Lord, of just hearing His voice and being in communion with Him is better than any other place we can be. The second week, which to me was kind of the the critical one in this, Ecclesiastes 4.6, which was better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind about just a life of simplicity, figuring out what really matters, and making room for that by letting go of chasing after some other things, having margin in your life. And then last week, last week's verse was the tricky verse about wisdom, Proverbs 16, 16. The first service, everybody could say the first two, and we got to the third one, and it kind of went, <laughs> so let's, let's see if we can say uh, last week's verse together. How much better to get wisdom than gold to choose understanding rather than silver. Proverbs sixteen sixteen. And then today, uh, as we talk about uh, a different theme, the closing message today is better is a good name. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, I, I messed up in the verse that I gave you. I made a typo in the memory verse. So I need you to write in something. Proverbs 22, 1 actually says, A good name is more desirable than great riches. So write in the word great. Uh, to be esteemed as better than silver or gold. This is the verse that is the answer to the trick question, when is good better than great? Well, this is the answer to it. When we're talking about a name versus riches. A good name is more desirable than great riches to be esteemed as better than silver or gold. Can you do that with me? (laughs) No. All right, let's try it together. A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Again, a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Kill it on the screen. Put down the notes. All right, repetition's the mother of learning, so let's repeat it. A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Awesome. One more time, you'll have it down pat. A good name. And the reference? Y'all are so good. Y'all will memorize scripture faster than I do. Great, great job. This passage is, is a bit counterintuitive, at least in our culture, isn't it? 
Because at some level, haven't you been taught that you shouldn't worry about what other people think? I mean, didn't your mama or your Sunday school teacher or somebody down the line teach you that? That you shouldn't worry about what other people think. And there are certain situations where, okay, that could be true. But this passage is sort of running against that, isn't it? To be esteemed. Well, being esteemed has to do with how other people view you. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. A good name. Well, the whole idea of a good name is about your reputation. It's what other people think of when they hear your name, when they think of you. This is where Solomon is saying, you know what? It does matter what other people see when they think of you and when they see you. Your reputation matters. Now, this doesn't mean that we ought to cave to the whims and wishes of the world and go whatever direction that they think we ought to go so that we'll be popular. He's not saying that at all. But what he is saying is what other people think of when they think of you, it really does matter. Your reputation in the world matters. And he says, it's this big. It's better than silver or gold. It's better than the greatest riches. When he's talking about silver and gold, he's, he's not talking about you know, what Burl Ives is singing about at Christmas time. He's talking about the good stuff of this world. He's talking about it's better than bling. It's better than having you know, newer cars and bigger houses and nicer clothes and more shiny stuff to, to put on your neck and on your fingers and on your wrists. It's better than all that stuff rolled together, a good name, a good reputation. So we're going to think today about our names and what they stand for. When people hear your name, something comes to mind. What do you think that is? I want you to really think about that today. When, when somebody hears your name, certain stuff comes to mind. What do people think of when they hear your name? I've thought about that a lot this week for myself. If, if a good name... Is that important? What do people think of when they hear my name? And I mean, here's the kind of tough part about that for me is a lot of people know my name because I've pastored for a lot of years on the Eastern Shore because I pastored in a large church. There are a bunch of people who, in truth, don't, they don't really know me, but they feel like they know me. They know my name. They recognize me at Walmart, and they associate certain things with my name. What do people think of when they hear my name, when they see my face? I've really wrestled with that and asked that question. And part of what maybe is a little weird for me is I've realized there are so many people who don't really know me but who feel like they know something of my reputation from a distance. And so the lens that they see me through is through the churches that I have, have founded and pastored. And so for good or bad, a lot of, in this community, a lot of people who know me, it's not even through freedom, it's through Coates because I, I pastored there for the first 11 and a half years of its existence. And so, you know, I've asked the question, all right, if for all the people who saw me through the lens of that church, then how would those people see me? What, what values and things would they associate with me through that church? And I think, well, probably on the good side, some of the things that Coates is na- known for, and, and so these are ex- sort of extensions of my passions. Coates was known for, you know, being really involved with broken people. That it's the fellowship of the broken, that, that Coates was always a place where the door was open to anybody, no matter your hurt, habit, or hang-up. That's why recovery was so central. If you're addicted to alcohol or drugs or porn, or if you're, you're broken by divorce and you know, some kind of loss and major issue, that this is a place for you to not only fit and belong, but to experience both acceptance and real power for life change. And so, you know, broken people, um, 
I hope and believe that Coates was known for really reaching out to people who were in need. That's why we created the Hope Center and the whole thing of, of providing counseling service and dental services and medical services for people who couldn't afford to pay for those things and sharing the gospel with them. That was a, a huge part of what we valued and, and worked toward. And, and just the whole thing of missions, particularly international missions and constantly going to the mission field and sending people to the mission field and sending money there. And so those were positive things that, that Coates was known for that I feel like, well, those are, I hope those are extensions of my heart and my passions. I think that's part of why we went in that direction. And so I could feel good about those things. But I just want to be completely honest with you in saying, as I've thought about my own life and what I have stood for, what's been associated with my name, here's the reality of the matter now and in recent years. The things that I just described are all true. Those are certainly things that we really poured our energy into cared about, believed in, sought to do. And yet, because of what happened in my life over the course of the past three years, going through a divorce and being asked to step down, and just all the stuff that, that flowed out of that, it feels, and particularly for that, that season of the next year or so, it felt like for all the good things that I could say that I've stood for, that my name represented, that would be associated with my reputation, that all of those things got trumped, got overshadowed by essentially one or two things. My marriage failed. And that means spiritually I'm a failure. That I'm a failure in the eyes of God, that I'm a failure in the eyes of the world. And, and I, I appreciate the fact that Many of you who are friends would shake your heads and go, no, that's really not how it is. No, at, at some level, let's just be honest with each other. I'm talking about how it feels when you go through that, that it truly feels like, and the enemy uses that kind of stuff to say, you are a failure. And here's what your reputation is. Your reputation is that you failed. You preached one thing, you did another. That makes you a failure. That makes you a hypocrite. This is what people will remember you for. They will remember you for divorce. They will remember you for having been asked to leave a church that you founded. This is what people will remember. And when they hear your name, this is what they will think of. I can't tell you how many times that has been whispered in my brain. Can anybody in the room, in your own experience, relate to what I'm talking about? For all of the good that you've ever tried to do, that you've ever tried to live for, that something happened in your life. For you, it may not have been a divorce. It may not have been that you were asked to leave a job. But that something came along and it became the big black mark, the big black cloud that overshadowed everything else that you've stood for. And it just feels like, oh, I am a failure. When people think of me, they're not going to think good reputation. They're not going to think positive stuff. They're going to think about my biggest failure. The devil is called the accuser of the brethren for a good reason. Because that's what he does. He accuses us of always being the worst version of ourselves. And he'll take whatever your worst failure is, and he'll hold a magnifying glass over it all the time and say, You see, this is all anybody can see when they look at you. And so the first thing that I want us to clear up today is to dispel the lie, the misunderstanding, that to have a good name and a strong reputation means that you've been perfect. Because it doesn't. If it did, none of us in the room would qualify. Amen? Amen. 
Everybody in the room has got their own shame story. Everybody has got their thing, their, their point of failure and weakness that makes you feel like, oh, I don't really know that I've got a strong reputation. Well, we start with this basic truth. A good name doesn't mean that you're perfect, but that you are being perfected by the one who is. I love this quote from Socrates. He was a wise man, and he said this, Regard your good name as the richest jewel that you can possibly possess. The way to gain a good reputation is to endeavor to be what you desire to appear. Is that not a great line? Now, I realize that's a real elementary truth, but it is so profound. Let's do that last sentence again. The way to gain a good reputation is to endeavor to be what you desire to appear. You know what he's talking about, don't you? He's acknowledging the fact that there are at least two versions of you. There is the you that you want to project. This is the version of you that you want people to see. And, you know, with, with some minor variations, we all know what that, that version is. You know, th- this is the good you. The you that's always honest, that can be completely trusted, that lives with integrity, that's generous, that, that you know, is kind to kittens and puppies. And, you know, the, the version of you that's just always doing the right thing, right? Everybody needs that version of you projected, don't you? I mean, unless you're just wanting to be a villain on, on you know, TV or something, that, that's who we want to project. And then there's the real me who wants to be seen in all these ways and believes that I'm a generally good guy, but there's the real version of you that uh, at times may not tell the truth when the truth isn't convenient. But I want you to always trust me. And there's the version of you that might at times cheat a little bit, you know, might bend the rules to keep life from being too uncomfortable. But I want you to think that I always follow the rules. There's the version of you that sort of, will do the easier thing and compromise at times. And he, Socrates said, look, here's the deal. You want a good name? You, you ought to because it's more precious than, than the best stuff the world could offer. But if you're going to have a good reputation, what you're going to have to do is endeavor to make this mesh with this. You're going to endeavor, have to endeavor to actually live the way you want to be perceived. To live your life the way that you want people to perceive that you live your life. Do you all see the discontinuity between those two? Your name stands for something. Every name stands for something. In fact, let's do a little exercise. I want to call out some names. You don't have to respond out loud. But I want you to just see what immediately comes to mind when you hear these names. Adolf Hitler. Billy Graham. Saddam Hussein. Gandhi. Martin Luther King Jr. Osama bin Laden. Mother Teresa. Now, chances are, probably hardly anybody in this room has ever met any of those people that I just named. And yet, for every single name that I called, specific stuff came to mind, didn't it? Because there's a reputation that goes with each of those names. There's, there's real power in those names, for good or for bad. None of those names had any meaning when any of those people were born. They were just ordinary names. 
The reason that those names carry such weight for good or for bad is because of choices that those people made in the course of their lives. Some of them great sacrifices, choices of of integrity and passion, and others evil, harm, self-indulgence, and all all of these other things. But choices have determined what's attached to their names. What's attached to your name? Solomon said, A good name is better. A good name is better than anything else that the world could offer. So here's a question. How is a good name really that much better? I mean, seriously. If you could have a good name, or you could be fabulously wealthy, which would you choose? That's actually a tough question, isn't it? I mean, for real. Like for Christmas this year, you either get a good name or you get fabulous wealth. You have to think about that for a while, aren't you? Solomon said, been there and done that on both sides good name is far better how is a good name really far better three things from scripture that i want to remind you of today and the first one is a good name is better because a good name it truly instills confidence proverbs 10 9 says this whoever walks in integrity walks securely but whoever takes crooked paths will be found out the truth here is so simple and you know it When you live with integrity, when you're making wise choices and doing the right things, you just have a confidence about you. You're not afraid of being found out. You're not afraid that that's going to catch up with you. You're not afraid that God's going to punish you. You can live with confidence. Shine the spotlight on my life. I don't have anything to hide because I've been doing the right stuff. I have confidence because of that. But the converse of that is just as true, isn't it? When you've been compromising... When you've been cheating, when you've sacrificed your integrity, all the confidence just pours out of your body like you had holes in the soles of your feet, doesn't it? You're looking over your shoulder. You're, you're afraid of being found out. You don't have any confidence with people or confidence with God because there's not integrity there. I'm going to share a story. And I, boy, I, I hesitated to share this because the two or three times I've ever shared it publicly, I kind of took a beating for for sharing this but i'm gonna share it anyway because it's it's the truth and it illustrates what we're talking about long time ago 26 years ago when i was a younger and more foolish man i was a student at the university of alabama and i was driving home for the weekend it was a friday night and i was driving down highway 82 just goes through the most rural parts of alabama i'm between tuscaloosa and, and prattville on just some of that just barren area through there and I'm driving faster than I should have been, and I go down a big, long hill and get to driving really faster than I should have been. And I'm meeting a line of cars, and it's well after dark, and so all I'm seeing is headlights. And you know what's coming, you know. About the middle of the pack, I realize as I'm passing those cars, it's a state trooper in the middle of the pack. And I'm like, oh, man, I look down, and I realize he has nailed me at the speed that I'm going, and I'm the only car going south, so I'm like, he can't have missed me. Immediately look in my mirror, and yep, he's got me, you know. He's putting on his brakes, and he's immediately trying to turn. But I realize in that moment, he's in a tough spot. It's going to take him a moment to get turned around because the road's so narrow, and he's sort of caught in traffic, and a terrible thought pops in my mind. (laughs) I bet I can get away. And so in that one moment of decision, I floor it. Which sounds way more impressive than it really was, because flooring my Nissan Pulsar was sort of like flooring your sewing machine. You know, I'm like, it's going to be like a scene from a movie, and I punch it and don't really feel anything. But I'm like, you know, I, 
uh, as fast as I can. I get over that next hill, and I'm watching, and sure enough, he's, he's turning around, and he is coming back to get me. And I'm thinking, I'm like, I know exactly where I am. Just over this hill in the next curve, there's a dirt road that turns off to the right, and it's completely dark. There's no lights or anything down that way. And if I can just get to that road and get down. So I whip in there, and I know he's coming fast. He's got a lot more under his hood than I do. And I'm like, only way I can get away is to hide. And I, I turn in there, and I'm like, I've got to kill my lights and no brake lights to pull up my parking brake. And I just, I'm just like, oh, God, let the dust go down. Let the dust go down so that he doesn't see that I turned in a dirt road. And, and I'm sitting there in the you know, shade of these trees in the dark. And he, sure enough, whoa, the trooper flies by chasing me but going on down the, the main highway. And at this point, it begins to dawn on me what I have done. And I'm like, oh, no, I, I'm, I'm just dead here, you know. He's going to go around the next curve and see I'm not there. There was only one other turn. He's coming back to get me, so I'm like, I've got to get down this road, but I can't turn on my lights. He'll see that. So in pitch black darkness, I'm using my parking brake so that even my brake lights run on to creep down this dirt road, trying to find some place to hide. I find a little church at the bottom of the hill, and I hide behind the church. And now I'm shaking from head to toe because I'm like, I was the most straight and narrow teenager you could ever imagine. I never so much as stole a stick of gum in my life. And I'm realizing, okay, people who speed get a ticket. People who run from the law after they speed go to jail. Tonight is the night I'm going to jail because in my mind, I know what has happened. He has put out an APB for red Nissan Pulsar. Even though our closing combined speeds would have been over 120 miles an hour, in my mind, in that moment, I'm like, I bet he got my tag number. He got my tag number. He's put out a bolo for me. They are coming after me. I know that they are. I'm just trembling from head to toe. I'm about to wet on myself sitting behind this church, and I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? And, you know, finally I'm like, I've got to get home. And so I finally pull out, and, I, you know, now I'm trying to drive, like, super safe. I'm 10 miles an hour below the speed limit, you know, just, and, and I get on the main road, and I start easing down the main road, and he's sitting on the shoulder of the road with his lighter, and I'm like, holy smoke, he outsmarted me. He knew what I did, and he's just waiting for me. So now I'm really just about to just make a mess right there in my car, and I, when I get right up on him, I realize what's happened. He has chased down the next car, apparently. Some poor sucker got my ticket. Is all I can figure because there wasn't anybody right in front of me. I go on by him, and it's another hour and a half drive to get home. And I'm telling you, for the rest of that drive, I am scared out of my mind. I'm trembling all the way home. Every time I meet anything with a light on top, I just know they're, they're here to get me. He's called ahead. They're, they're, they're going to take me to jail tonight. Now, the first half of that drive home, the first hour and a half, I was the happiest, most carefree person. It's the weekend. I'm going home. It's going to be a blast. And I am just as happy as I can be. And because in a moment of time, I made a terrible decision. I compromised my integrity. I did something that I knew was wrong. For the rest of that trip, it was the most miserable drive home I had ever had in my life. And I went from being so carefree and happy and confident to having no confidence and being just completely filled with fear because of one choice. Now, you may hear that story and go, oh, that's kind of funny, uh, you know, you ran from the law. Glad I've never done it. Although it's kind of funny to realize how many people after the first service came up to me and said, I've done the exact same thing. It's a little scary. We all belong in church together, I guess. But uh, <laughs> you may not have done that. But I'll tell you what is disturbing is to know you may have never run from the police. But there are a number of people listening right now that the truth of the matter is you don't have any confidence right now. 
because you know that if anybody went home to your house today and they looked on your computer, they looked on your phone or your tablet, and if they looked carefully enough, they would find that that device has been used to access so many sexually explicit pictures, so much porn, so many videos, and that's been the little secret that you've kept hidden away, but you know about it, and God knows about it, and it causes your confidence with people and with God to just go down the tubes, knowing that one day, if that's ever found out, life would change so drastically. And For others, it's not a secret like that. For others, the killer is that you've been willing to cheat. Maybe as a student you cheat, maybe... With your finances, you cheat. Maybe you get paid in cash as much as you can so you can cheat on your taxes. Maybe you cheat financially by robbing God, spending the divine portion, that first tenth that God says is His. You do stuff financially that you know is wrong, and it robs you of confidence. For a disturbing number of people, a very disturbing number today, this wasn't true 10 and 20 years ago, the thing that robs you of confidence is that you have gotten involved in an inappropriate relationship that the internet allowed. And thanks to the gifts of Facebook and texting and being able to send emails and all these secure ways to be connected and an ability to be somebody other than who we normally are, it's given you the ability to connect with somebody at a level that's inappropriate whether or not it's ever gone physical and you know it and you know that if the content of those conversations ever came out it would have a devastating impact on your life and your most significant relationships and the knowledge of that has completely eroded your confidence it's killing you spiritually it's the thing that you carry around we could go on and on There's a lot of different ways that we can compromise our integrity in a way that it destroys us spiritually and leaves us without any confidence. But a walk of integrity that allows us to have a good name in the sight of people and in the sight of God, it brings back that confidence. For some of us, there's going to have to be some some changing, some bringing to the light, some closing of some doors, some changing of some habits in order to begin to to build a new track record, a new name, and to restore confidence. A good name gives you confidence. Secondly, a good name is better because a good name speaks for you. You know, Solomon was who we talked about last week. He's the one who wrote so much about wisdom. We said that the thing that Solomon asked for was to have wisdom, and God gave it just at an incredible level. And in 2 Chronicles 9, the Solomon story has developed to the point that around the world, people have heard of Solomon. His reputation has spread in a big way and leaders who normally were all paranoid of each other and they're always building walls you know to keep each other out and raising up armies to oppose each other but because of Solomon's wisdom and reputation other leaders instead of wanting to destroy him want to reach out and connect with him and the queen of Sheba was one of those people in 2nd Chronicles 9 says when the queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame she heard of his reputation she came to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions and so arriving with a great caravan with camels carrying spices and large quantities of gold and precious stones. 
she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind, which tells me Solomon was not only wise, but he was also patient, that he could hear all that a woman had on her mind. And beyond that, he answered all of her questions, and nothing was too hard for him to explain to her, which proves he was the wisest man on earth, that he could answer all of a woman's questions satisfactorily. Because women think about a lot. And she said to the king, The report that I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom, it's true. You have far exceeded the report that I heard. Now I share that little piece to just make a simple point. Solomon had a reputation. He had a vast reputation. And it was such a positive reputation that somebody who might otherwise have naturally looked at him as a threat and an enemy and somebody to be attacked or opposed, but because of the strength of his name, Instead of somebody being an enemy, she said, I want to know that person. I, I want to reach out. I want to bring gifts because I think it would be so significant to know this person if he's half of what I've been told because she couldn't believe the full report of what she, what she heard sounded too good to be true. And she got there and went, wow, as good as your name is, you are better. That's pretty strong, isn't it? You've answered everything I've asked. You, you've exceeded even what I have heard about you. Well, it's a good example, the whole encounter there is a good example of something that we've all experienced where you ever have an encounter where you finally meet somebody face to face and the first thing that you say is, I feel like I already know you. I feel like I already know you so well. Why? Because I've heard so much about you. That happens to you all along, doesn't it? There'll be somebody you finally get to meet face to face and it's like, oh man, even though we're just meeting, I know you. What are you saying in that? I know your name. I know your reputation. I know so much stuff about you well that can be good or bad as i was just sharing out of my own experience um you know part of of the joy of living in an area like this is it's not like living in dallas or atlanta where you know you could go all year long and hardly ever meet anybody that you know out in public we when we live in an area like this you know you can't go to Winn-Dixie or to Walmart without bumping into people that you know. And I'll guarantee you, I can't go to, you know, just because of having pastored for a long time here, everywhere I go. I, bu- I don't necessarily bump into people that I know, but I bump into people, they've got the look. The look that clearly says, oh, I know who you are. And sometimes that's a good look, and sometimes that's a bad look. Because the whole thing that I sh- already shared earlier about this whole thing of, regardless of what my life has stood for, the conclusion of my ministry at Coates, you know, involved some really negative things. And I said the enemy is the one who will always be whispering about your biggest failure and, you know, how your marriage failure is and ministry failure. Just those things are what everybody will remember about you. Well, the thing that makes that so much more believable is when people show up and they live that out. When they live up to your worst expectations. You know, when they show up and they make it clear to you, yeah, that's what we think of you and worse. And so... Part of the tough thing of living in a smaller community is your reputation precedes you kind of everywhere you go. And boy, have I found that to be true. And with a lot of people in the last couple of years, a number of people have been, a lot of people have been really gracious and others have been far less than gracious. There have been a number of people who've just been downright ugly. And I I hit a streak here several weeks ago where... Different people, just you know, folks that I'd meet on the street, hadn't seen in a couple of years, that I'd pastored for a long time, that you would have thought that I slapped them and cursed their mama or something, just how ugly that they would be face to face. And boy, in those moments, 
the enemy just uses that in a big way to go, see, that's all anybody thinks of you. They know that you're a failure. They, they see and remember the worst about you and feel like, oh, the worst experiences of my life have gone before me. But God is so good, right after kind of a string of those here a few weeks ago, then I had a week where at the gym, and for me, the gym's a really good thing, not just physically, but because I wind up, if I'm not careful, leading a really insulated life because I serve a church, and so I'm around church people like you all the time, and that's a real blessing. The only downside of that is it's hard to impact the lost world when you're around Christians all the time. And so the gym becomes a good outlet for me because the folks I'm around at the gym don't go to my church, and you know they don't know me as their pastor, and that, that's really kind of a cool thing to just get to get in there and develop relationships well in in the span of about a week after a run of some really rotten experiences with people on the street clearly god just sent some people along who had no idea what's going on in my life and people who i thought hardly knew who i was other than to know my name one after another came up to me seemingly completely random and i just know a good god causes stuff like this to happen came up and just out of the clear blue said hey you know what i heard people talking about you this weekend and well i was on a run where i'm like oh i don't like hearing that you know heard people talking about you this weekend. Man, it was good stuff. It, it was just, I was so impressed with what I heard. I want to come visit your church just based on the stuff. And to just have person after person come up and say that and to realize that is God just going, you know what, I can not only restore you, but I can restore your reputation. Because your name goes before you. Part of the beauty of your name going before you is... That becomes a defense for you. In fact, I will share this. About the, the third person in the gym who spoke up on my behalf, I only heard about it secondhand when somebody came and said, you know, so-and-so, and I'm like, yeah, I know who that is. We don't really know each other, but I, I know who that is. They said, well, let me tell you what happened this week. She owns a salon, and somebody came in her salon this week and started talking about you, about me, and said they were trashing you, and they're in the chair next to her and just rah, 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 all the just being ugly and spreading untruths and, and said she just said you stop that is wrong i know him and that is not true i know what he's like and i'm thinking i didn't realize this person even knew me really and in her words she said i just went and i just went and got ghetto on her i'm like wow I wouldn't normally endorse somebody going ghetto, but it's like, I'm glad you went ghetto on her. You know, for once in my life, just be ghetto, whatever that meant. Just, you know, <laughs> thanks. It is nice, after a string of some ugly stuff, for God to just show you, you know what? I've got your back. I, I'll restore that, and I'll put people in place where even your reputation can be guarded. And here's what a reputation can do in speaking for you through the, the really rough stuff of the last two or three years, one of, the, one of the really challenging questions was, do you explain yourself? You're going to have to live in a very public spot. You're going to have to resign in a very public spot. Do you explain the why? Do you defend yourself? Do you air dirty laundry? And I will say, there's a side of that that's tempting. It would be a lot easier for people to be understanding if you told the real story. And people wouldn't need to make up untruths if they knew the real story. And so there's a part of you that's tempted to air the dirty laundry. 
And in that, God was so very clear, you keep your mouth shut and you let your name and your reputation speak for itself. And in time, that will be sufficient. I've got your back. You just let your reputation speak for itself. Doesn't mean nobody will ever say anything bad about you. Doesn't mean nothing hurtful will be done. But in time, when it all settles, the people who know you, who know your name and your reputation, will see truth for what it is. And Well, I, what a Christian man is supposed to do, and I've talked about to other people about that, but I just couldn't sit here and shut up any longer. Well, I appreciate that. I just applaud you. I appreciate that, Forrest. I, I say all that, and I, I, I and I'll tell y'all, I wrestle with how honest to be with y'all. I mean, just about the experiences of my life, because there's a part of it where I'm like, you don't want to hear me talk about divorce and the of life again, and yet the truth of the matter is, it is significant that we be open and honest with each other about our joys and, and successes and wins as well as our struggles and failures. And I just need for you to know, for me personally, I've seen the reality of, of your name speaking for you. It doesn't mean you don't get hurt. It doesn't mean that nobody ever says anything bad about you. But if you walk with integrity, even when other people want to spread gar- garbage and make up stuff, whatever, and be hurtful, your name will ultimately speak for you. It's better to have a good name than great riches. The, the final thing that I'll say uh, about how a good name is better is a good name inspires others. When Paul was going out planning all these churches, people didn't have any idea how to be Christian. They didn't have a New Testament. They didn't know Jesus. They did not know how to live as Christians. Paul's life was the inspiration for so many, for countless people that inspired and changed them. His example, he was able to say to the Corinthians who struggled at learning what it meant to be Christian, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Everyone, every one of us is inspiring people in some way, for good or for bad. And everybody here really ought to be inspiring people to be what God made them to be, to be fully devoted followers of Christ. You can inspire people. I mean, people can look at you and go, wow, what is it about him? I mean, He's only got one handful, and it's a pretty small handful, and he's so ridiculously happy. And I'm over here, and I've got two handfuls, and I'm trying for more, and I'm not. I'm tired, and I'm stretched thin. What is it about you? Some of you that God, that, that other people look at you, and, and they, they see all that's going on in your life and go, she's really up against it. Single mom raising all these kids and all these financial challenges. and She's got joy like crazy that I don't have. What is it about you that makes you that way? Man, that inspires others. That, that invites others to experience what's real in your life. You may just feel like, I just don't know that I can be a very inspiring person. Let's try a little exercise here. Who in the room can name for me Miss America 2007? Anybody? Miss America 2007. Nobody in the first service could either. Okay, I'll give you an easier one. Academy Award winner, Oscar for Best Actor 2009. Anybody? Give you an even easier one. Super Bowl MVP 2005. Everybody watches the Super Bowl, right? 
Can anybody name the MVP from 2005? Not one person in two services could name any of those people. Guess what? Your preacher can't either. I don't have a clue. That's half the point. These are famous people. Inspiring people. We can't even remember their names. But now let's do the other half of the exercise. Name for me that teacher. All those years ago when you were in school. Name for me that teacher who inspired you. Who somehow they just connected with you like no other teacher had. And they just called something out in you. Name that coach who could get you to do things that nobody else could. They, they just inspired a, just a drive for greatness that others had not inspired. Name for me that adult who when others seemed to overlook you, they noticed you, they reached out to you, and they were really an inspiration and a point of connection that you really needed. Better still, name for me that friend who maybe before hadn't even been that close of a friend. But when you went through the darkest time in your life, he or she stood with you. They would go the extra mile with you. And your life was so different because they were there. Now you tell me this. Did you struggle with coming up with any of those names? How famous were any of those people? Any Miss Americas? Any multi-millionaires on your list? No, because it's not fame, it's not money, it's not greatness that makes a life inspiring. Those things don't make a person great. And the people whose names you just called to mind, there's some real greatness there. There's some real substance. There's some great reputations there. When you think about those people... Why do you remember them so well? Some of those people that you thought of were from many decades ago. Why do you remember their lives? It wasn't because of how much money they made. It wasn't because they were the most successful at what they did. You remember them because they cared. Because they were generous with their time. Because they showed you real love and compassion. Because they accepted you. Because they were truly generous with you isn't that the case those are the kinds of things that lead to a good name and a strong reputation were any of those people that you remembered perfect no but they did the things that inspired they did the things that were worthy of respect i know reality is there are some of us in the room that are just still going, yeah, that's all good, that's all good. But you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. I don't. I don't know what all you've done. But I know this. God's able to redeem it. God's able to use you in spite of whatever you've done. He knows what you've done. In fact, when he wrote to the church at Sardis... Uh, he pointed out that he knew the reality behind their reputation. He said, as he, as he spoke to them through John in Revelation 3.1, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. <laughs> Some of us, that, that's the thing that haunts us. Is we, we may enjoy a pretty good reputation out here, but God knows this version of us. And it's like, yeah, God... God knows I'm not just the guy who goes to church on Sunday morning and can smile and say, God bless you and all the right stuff. God knows the reality of me and my secret stuff and that spiritually I feel so dead. 
I don't feel like somebody that others should admire or want to imitate or be inspired by. What you feel is just the reality of Romans 3.23, that all of us have sinned and fallen short. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We've fallen short of God's plan. And God works only with those kinds of people. Isn't that good to know? God works exclusively with people who have fallen short. When Paul wrote to Timothy, a young leader who was still a relatively new believer, and yet the one that God was going to use to inspire and challenge and lead so many others, Timothy was struggling with this thing of, who's going to want to follow my example? People don't want to follow me. And he said, Timothy, don't you let other people look down on you. You're young. They're going to want to use that against you. You set an example for the believers in life, in love, in speech, in faith, and in purity. You be the pace setter. And he concluded that thought in 1 Timothy 4 with this critical idea. You let others see your progress. That is such a great, liberating thought. Because there's a prerequisite for progress. You've got to start somewhere down here. If you start up here, how do you make progress? If you start fully arrived, spiritually mature, how's anybody going to see your progress? I mean, the bottom line is, you show me the guy who's a spiritual giant, I can't relate to that. <laughs> it must be nice. But I can relate to the guy who's got struggles and failures and shame stories but who's seeking to get closer and closer to Jesus, to live out his faith, to be right and related to God and people, and who's really working at it, who's making progress. I can relate to that guy. He said, Timothy, you let him see your progress, which means you're going to have to be honest about your failures and just be honest about how God is bringing you along. God wants to redeem your past, not let your future be defined by your past. God loves to use progress in a simple life so don't let your past determine your future trajectory you're creating tomorrow's legacy today don't let the past determine that you let today's decisions determine that i, I want to conclude with this illustration and i'm done one of the things that as a pastor that i get called on to do all along sometimes it's a privilege and other times it's a great challenge and that is to preach people's funerals to have kind of the final word on a person's life. Their name has stood for something, and as a pastor, part of what you do at a funeral is you stand and declare what they have stood for. You declare, in, in essence, that's a lot of what a funeral does, is it declares the reputation, what their name has, and life has stood for. And sometimes that is a high honor to get to be the person who does that for them. The challenging times often are when you're the person in the room who knows the least about the person in the box. And that happens way more times than you would think, which is really, I mean, think about it. Everybody that comes to a funeral, it's who? It's everybody who knew that person, except for oftentimes the preacher. Because you get called in when that person didn't know you, and you're supposed to talk about them. That's really challenging. So they teach you in seminary the whole process of you go do a bunch of interviews when that's the case. You're going to do a funeral for a total stranger. If you're going to do it well, you go talk to the people who are closest to that individual, and you find out what they stood for. You learn their reputation. You learn what their name represented, what they were passionate about, and how they lived. And so, a couple of different instances that I, I'll mention to you. One, uh, an older gentleman. He, he lived into his 90s. And when I was called on to do his funeral, 
Um, I had barely known him from a distance, but I knew his family very well. And someone, a relative of his, was very close to me. So I was asked to do the funeral, and so I'm doing the, the deal that I know to do. So I'm going and getting with a bunch of different family members leading up to the funeral, saying, all right, tell me about your dad. Tell me about your granddad. Tell me what you remember. Tell me the best. Tell me what his life stood for. And person after person after person, I would ask that question. And instead of getting the normal answers, I would get, uh, well, uh, hmm, a lot of uhs, a lot of hmms, a lot of looking at the floor. And I mean, first couple of people, I'm like, well, that's weird. I mean, this is your relative. This is somebody you all knew really well, and he lived to be 90-something years old. He stood for something. Give me something. Hmm. Finally, somebody said, well, he liked to garden. Okie dokie. It's going to be a short funeral. What more can you tell? Hmm, I don't really know what else I could say. Kept on, kept on. Finally, somebody else. The only other thing they would ever give up is to say, well, he stayed married a long time. Now, he cheated a lot. He had a bunch of girlfriends, but he stayed married with all the girlfriends. That's it. I could never figure it out. One other fact about this individual. He liked to garden, and he stayed married, even though he liked the ladies. Did another funeral, similar kind of situation, sometime later. This time it was a young woman. She died in her mid-twenties, and she was obviously much loved, you know, just a lot of family and friends that came for that. I had to do the same thing, because I'd, I'd never met her before. She didn't live here. So I'm interviewing different family members, people who were close to her, and they gave up answers to the question much more readily, but they all came back to two things. This person had just, you know, had every opportunity to do what she wanted to with her life. And the same two answers came back from everybody that I talked with. They said, she loved Mardi Gras. She loved to party. And boy, anything that was Mardi Gras, that was a party or a parade, she was there. And the other thing was, she loved the University of Texas. She was a hook'em horns girl. So at the funeral, this part that I had no control over, at the graveside, there is a Mardi Gras band, and they danced by her, her casket. And we had to sing, while everybody did hook'em horns in the air, we had to sing, the eyes of Texas are upon you all the live long day. And that's the final commentary on her life. Well, it, it, it really is one of those things that is a sobering thought, whether you're a family member or a pastor doing it, to just realize your life stands for something. Your name stands for something. You're being remembered for something. Is the sum total of what you're passionate about and what you live for and what you'll be remembered for that you had a garden in your backyard, that you stayed married in spite of all your affairs, that you love to party at Mardi Gras or that you love the horns or the roll tide or the Auburn Tigers or the whatever. Is that going to be the sum total of your life? Because a good name is far more desirable than great riches. And to be esteemed is better than silver or gold, than gardening or girls, than partying or hooking them horns.
a good name, a life worthy of imitation is so much better. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that by your power, you would birth in us a desire to live a different kind of life, to, li- to live a life that is worth imitating, to live a life of substance that really matters. I pray today for conviction of sin and a conviction of and, and attraction to righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would birth it in our hearts to to want to see our past redeemed and to live a future that's different. I want to ask you right now as we are just bowing together, by a show of hands, how many of you would say, I need to make some changes if my life and reputation are going to stand for the right things. I, I am at a place, I want my name to stand for good things. I want to live a life worthy of imitation. I want a good name, but I need to make some changes. And just by raising my hand, I'm saying, I am serious about this today. By God's help and power, I want to make changes. Just raise your hand right now. All I want to do is just pray for you. People all over the room, thanks for your honesty in that. Father, I pray for every man and woman who has their hand raised and for myself. Lord, I pray that you would show us how we need to live differently and that you would pour into us the power to live differently. We do not believe in the ability to just fix ourselves. We ask you today, Lord, for the grace to live as men and women who represent you well in the world. Lord, we don't believe there's anything good in us but you. And we pray that your goodness would be expressed in our lives. We welcome that work and we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I want to say one final word. There are some who are listening here today who are who are watching online, that there's a one major hang-up for you. That to hear this message, you can probably nod and agree, that's right, that's right. That what you're talking about is true and right, and you could process this as a self-help, be-better kind of message. And I just want to be really clear, that is not what today is about. Because you can't fix yourself, and in your power, you can't lead a significantly better life. It's so easy to file this away as I need to try harder and be a better person so that I have a better reputation and my kids and grandkids and, and you know, co-workers and friends would want to be more like me and I'll try harder to do that. And if you think that you can do that in your own power, you have missed the point altogether. Trying harder to be better is never the answer. Without the power of God inside of you, changing you from the inside out, you are hopelessly lost and undone, and I am too. It is only His power that enables us to live the kind of life that He desires. There's nothing good in us but Him. And you have to be willing to let Him come and live in you and begin to change you from the inside. And that happens on a moment of time where you have to be vulnerable and willing to admit, I can't clean up my act. I've tried and, and you're really not going to do this unless you finally get to the end of your rope and realize it's pointless for me to keep trying to fix me. I can't fix me. When, if you're there, if you really are there, Jesus is so willing to come in and to wipe the slate clean and to begin to redeem all of that stuff from the past and to begin to change you from the inside out. But you have to be willing to invite him in and to allow him to be the Lord and master of your life. If you're willing to do that, if you want to do that, he is so ready to come in 
and give you a fresh start and a clean slate. I'm going to invite you once again to bow with me in prayer. If you're watching online, I just want to, where you are right now, I want you to bow and pray a simple prayer with me in your heart that says, Lord Jesus, come in my life. I need you. And I'm asking you to change me, to fill me up with your goodness, to give new direction in my life. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And I'm asking you now to wipe my slate clean and to help me to live as a different person. Thank you for forgiving me and saving me. Lord, thank you so much for your love and for your saving power. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. Our only hope is in you, and we trust you today to change us. Seal this moment in the hearts of those who've trusted you today with the deposit of your Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.